Hello, and welcome to One Stop Co-op Shop, your one stop for board game news and reviews. This week, game designers Peter Gusis and Michael Kelly will review a cooperative game and have a related design discussion. Hi, I'm Peter, and I'm here with Mike. Hey, everybody, and also joining us today, our longtime contributor, Jerry. Hi, all. hey And today we are looking at Set a Watch from Rock Manor Games. And our design discussion is going to be on randomness versus control in co-op games. But a quick word, if you haven't seen the YouTube videos or heard on Steve's podcast last week, we did start a Patreon for One Stop Co-op Shop, both the podcast and the YouTube channel. And we just want to thank you guys who have contributed so far. Certainly, we don't expect that from everybody. The content's going to continue to be free, but it certainly does help with hosting costs and you know other costs that are associated with running this stuff. Yeah, people have been very generous so far. We should already have enough money coming in to cover our podcast hosting fees, so (laughs) hooray for that. And if you don't get a chance to go check out the Patreon, there's a link in the show notes. Uh, We do have some cool levels over there, some cool tiers. One of them is voting on choices I make in my YouTube videos. Uh, We did that for the Outer Rim playthrough, and we also did it for the Dice Throne Adventures playthrough, so it's been a lot of fun to interact with people that way. Yeah, it's very cool. Without further ado, let's get into Set a Watch. It is set in a fantasy universe where there are these minions running around all over the board and they're trying to summon these great old ones. It's very Cthulhu-like in my mind. It's not exactly that. I mean, it's not Cthulhu missiles and great old ones, but they're, you know, these minions running around trying to summon guys and you are trying to disrupt their plans. And one of the big themes of the game is that in the darkness is when these minions do their worst dastardly deeds. So every night you have to set a watch to help guard your camp. And so they're going to be, one of the people is going to be resting and doing some things to help out the team, but the rest of the team is going to be watching at night for when these minions come to take over your camp. So that is the basics of the theme, and now Mike's going to cover basics of the gameplay. So a key thing in this game is that you always have four heroes. You'll divide them up among the players. And one hero every round. There's eight basic rounds where you're fighting at eight different locations, and then you have a final location that determines whether you win or lose for good. But at each of those locations, one of the four heroes will have to man the fire. And that means they don't get to fight, but they get to do these camp actions beforehand. And it's all based on dice, so each hero rolls three dice at the beginning of the turn. You choose who's going to camp. They use their dice to do some abilities, like looking ahead at which enemies are coming, or scouting ahead at locations, or healing people. Then the other three heroes get to face this line of enemies. So based on the location, you'll fight between five and maybe eight enemies. And they'll all be face down, but based on your firewood level and how big your fire is, the light will reveal from one to three of those enemies. And you can only interact with, generally, the one to three enemies that are revealed. So you'll be fighting the enemies with your dice. You can just use the dice as direct attacks, going straight against the health value of the enemies. But also, each hero has three ability cards that they can put dice on to use to perform different abilities. And there, it doesn't matter what the value of the die is. So whereas you want to like attack with your highest dice possible, you can use a one-value die to activate your abilities. Whichever monsters are left at the end of the round will go into this horde deck, which means they'll come back during the final battle. That's terrible. But also, they have a damage value that forces characters to flip over that many ability cards, making them unusable in future combats until they're healed. So if you can survive through the eight locations, keeping your firewood level high enough, that's one of the big camp actions, and get through the final location without all of you being knocked out, having all three of your ability cards flipped over, you win. 
Cool. So for those of you who are new to the podcast, welcome. What we do here is we do a top five list for every game, which is we start with our number five thing, which we think is the least important thing you need to know about the game, and go all the way to number one, which we think is the most important. And we're going to start with our guest tonight, Jerry. What is your number five thing for Set a Watch? My number five thing is the dice in the game. And this is a bit of a mix for me. The different characters either roll D6s or D8s, depending on you know their character and what their abilities are. But when you roll the dice, the cool part is the, the person who is in the camp, the values of the dice really matter. Like sixes, for example, allow you to heal another character who's not who, who's actually on watch, who's not resting, which is a really powerful ability. And then some of the other camp actions require you know increasing values or doubles, and that's pretty neat. On the downside, though, I typically felt that the the what I the actual values of what I rolled didn't matter. Now, maybe this is because I, I usually played D6 characters and not the D8 characters, but I seem to always want to use my dice for my skills versus using them for direct damage. And the only time the dice values matter for those that are actually on, a, on watch is if they're doing a direct attack. So the camp actions, the, the dice values and rolling the dice and using them were, were cool and there were interesting decisions there. But because the dice values don't matter when you're using skills, I thought it was a little bit of a letdown when you were actually on watch and fighting the creatures. I may have more to say about that later. Yeah, and I do too. I sort of agree with you in parts, Jerry, but we'll, we'll save that for one of my later points. All right, so my number five is the fire mechanic. So the way that works is there are certain levels, thresholds you have to get. And when you reveal a new location, the firewood will typically go down and you'll need to collect more. And some of those camp actions are increasing the firewood so you can kind of see more enemies. And so it's kind of neat. I haven't seen a system like that before. It's almost like you have to do some bookkeeping while everybody else is sitting out there fighting. You're like... Hey, I'm the guy back here taking care of this fire. Thematically, it's, you know, I, I like the decisions that the person at the camp has to make. But I think this light system's kind of neat, too, because if you don't see very far ahead, it's definitely going to come back to bite you. And there are lots of times where you want to know what enemies are coming, because if they get in that first position, you're in trouble if you don't know a lot of times. Yeah, that part is the same as my number five. I really like the light mechanism and the firewood mechanism. Actions are so precious in this game, especially the camp actions. You often want to do a lot of stuff, and taking the time to chop firewood doesn't feel like the most exciting one to do. But the game just punishes you very roughly if you uh, don't have at least two enemies revealed. Because as Peter mentioned, there's some really, really challenging abilities that only activate when enemies reach the front of the line. So if you can't see they're coming and take them out ahead of time, then they can really mess you up. So I like that a lot. I do think it uh, adds to kind of the puzzle nature of the game, which I'll discuss later. And it's very thematic. I think like this idea that the darkness is kind of encroaching on you and you're you're getting smothered by it. And the, the lower your light gets, the more desperate it gets. I think that's really uh, carried out well by that mechanic. Well, I'm going to jump ahead a bit because the fire mechanic was my number four. I thought it was really innovative. I liked how it interacted with the game. And I even liked how some of the creatures thematically interacted with the campfire. So, you know, if you fought a tree ant, for example, and you kill them, uh, it gives you more firewood. Or uh, some of the other creatures might have health-based, like a fire elemental type creature had more strength if you had a higher fire value. So I liked both how that worked for revealing the enemies and how the enemies could interact with it. Cool, I guess I'll keep going with my number four then. And my number four is that the turns in the game are simultaneous. And if you guys have listened to us in the past, you know we love simultaneous things. 
But here, it might go a little too far for me in the fact that basically everybody's rolling their dice at the same time. And then you're kind of like, okay, here's the line of enemies. And it's really a group discussion at this point. So this is going to be very, very group dependent on how well this goes. I think this is a game where if you have an alpha player, this could go very wrong very quickly because all the information is right there on the table. Now, you may know your abilities and other people may not know them, but if they've played the game two or three times, there aren't that many characters in the game, they probably will know those characters and they'll probably be able to like, why don't you shoot him and do this? So it could be at its best when everybody is talking collaboratively and working together, but I certainly see a potential for people to just kind of take over because there aren't really individual turns and everybody can see everybody's ability to do stuff at the same time. And it's not like any of it's that complicated where I got to figure out my stuff while you're figuring out your stuff. It really is a situation, I think, where one person can kind of run the table. So I think the way to counter that is to just play with lower player count games. Yeah, that's a good point. And the lower player count thing is going to come up again for me in a little bit. But my number four is a mix, and that's the characters and balance in the game. So on the positive side, the heroes, there are uh, six in the base game. If you buy the deluxe version, you get seven. If you kickstart it, you get eight. And they are pretty different. They each have a unique camp ability. They have either melee or range combat, which means they can target different enemies. And each have their unique set of five ability cards that let them do like different things, like the Beastmaster can tame animals and then use them to attack each other. That's all really cool. It does feel different to play uh, each uh, character, and it's kind of fun to experiment with them. That being said, the negative is that the balance is not great on them. Now, the balance between heroes, I don't mind that much. Uh, it's kind of like Sentinels of the Multiverse. You know, if I want to have an easier game, I'm going to use this person. If I want to have a harder game, I'm going to use that person. That's not a big deal for me. I think the like the wizard and the rogue are often a little bit more powerful in this game than some others, but whatever. What I don't like is that the internal balance is not great. And what I mean by that is that in these five ability cards, there are some that are always incredibly useful in any situation, and some that are very, very situational, and some that I can't really imagine using almost ever. Now, you start with three randomly, and the game gives you uh, the option to use actions to switch those out. But the thing is, I feel like in every game that I use that hero, if I'm playing smartly, I'm going to get to my best abilities as soon as possible. If I don't start with them, I'm going to spend actions to get with them. So I don't like that, the fact that uh, the five abilities gives the appearance of more variability even within the same hero, but in the end I feel like I'm going to do the exact same thing. It uh, reminds me of our review of Too Many Bones, where I felt the same way. There's like this big upgrade path, but in the end, uh, for many of the characters, it's very obvious if you want to actually win, which way you should go. Yep, I'm going to talk about that later. Yep, me as well. <laughs> well, yeah, it did, it did bother me as much because I did enjoy them. I think uh, if the con part of that mix had been bigger, it probably would have been uh, higher on my list. Anyway, Jerry, what's your number three? Well, my number three is that I found the game a bit repetitive. So you're going through eight locations, and each location has a line of enemies, and you're flipping up the enemies and trying to figure out the way to defeat them the best way. But it seemed to me like after the first two or maybe three locations, you as a group have stumbled upon good combos. Like, first you're going to use this power to reveal something, then, you know, this other player is going to either tame the creature or use a wizard power to blow it away or whatever. And you'd continually use those same combos each time. And there wasn't anything in the game that, uh, because 
every die could be used to activate powers. There wasn't anything where you had to switch it up and try to figure out a different combo or a different approach based on the dice you rolled. You could use that same combo each round over and over. Well, you could use it twice each round if you hurt yourself, but the point is you could use the same combo if you if you stumbled upon a good one. And so within the same game, I'd find it a little bit repetitive, but then you know I've played it a couple times now, and it, it felt the same both times. So I was a little bit disappointed in the variety that I saw in the gameplay. Yeah, and kind of continuing the damage talk, my number three is actually on the damage system in the game, and I actually think it's done really well. So the way it works is you're going to have three active powers at a time, and at the beginning of the game, everybody starts with one of those powers damage, which means you flip it over, you can't use it. Well, whenever you go to, you know, tend the fire, everything else, you're going to automatically heal one of those. And as Mike said, if you have a six, you also can put it there to either heal yourself or somebody else. And at various points throughout the game, you're going to end up taking wounds. And usually you can decide who takes those wounds. So you kind of have to figure out whose powers are less useful at the time. And so I really do think it's neat how you flip these cards over And if you want to use a power either a second time or your first time, if you didn't use a dice on it, you can always choose to flip over and damage that power to use it. So if you really needed something and if you're in a bind, you can always use those powers again, but you're going to wound yourself to do it. So I just like how this system works. I like games where when you get damaged, it actually hinders your ability to perform later on as long as they give you an opportunity to reverse it in some way. So I do like how damage works in the game and I really that led to a lot of enjoyment for me is trying to figure out that puzzle as well as the puzzle of how to defeat the enemies in the line. Yeah, and Jerry, I don't kind of going back because I, I didn't get a chance to respond to you before. I don't disagree with you about the puzzle. I do still think that it's not fully repetitive and I've played the game more than either of you, I think and I haven't felt bored with it at all. But what you say is completely true. You do kind of get combos and play them over and over again. That (laughs) combined, like really thinking about it, that combined with the alpha player potential issue and my issue with like some powers being better than others makes me almost wish this was like a hand of cards that you had to play through. So you'd have to find a way to use the weaker abilities and the combos wouldn't be the same every time. Yeah, just, just sort of a random thought there. But my actual number three is going back to things you've already said. uh, It's a mix, and that's the camping actions. So on the positive side, sending this player to the camp, I find it an interesting choice. uh, The idea that you want to send the person with the worst dice there or the person who's the most uh, damaged there usually. But at the same time, some of the coolest abilities might need higher value dice. So you might actually kind of weaken your ability to fight well if you send the best person to the camp. I like that choice. Um, I think it's kind of interesting. I think even the actions they do are interesting. It's a very tough choice, like sort of a little mini, like three dice worker placement game trying to figure out what to do. The negative, and it's going to be nothing for your group or huge for your group, is that because one player basically plays their own little mini game of camp before the fight, then it has nothing to do in the fight except maybe give suggestions, I think is really bad for a four player game. I think this person could be super bored or feel totally disconnected, whoever it happens to be when you're camping. Uh, Not a problem at all for solo, two-player, or three-player, but I could see this game being really problematic with four players. So again, uh, this might be a complete pro for you. I think the camp stuff is really cool if uh, you're playing with three or less. But with four, I think you'll have to get some buy-in or really work to make sure that player stays engaged in the puzzle, kind of with what Peter said, the simultaneous discussion, or you could really just have a negative experience for some of your players out there. Yeah, and I'm going to contradict that a little bit in the fact that 
I think there is so much open table talk at this game that I think even with four people, nobody's going to get bored. Because even that camp phase, which one person's doing, everybody has input on that. At least, you know, in the games we've played so far, everybody's like, oh, no, why don't you do that? Why don't you do that? I mean, so even though it's one person technically doing the camp, it's really everybody involved in that, too. And again, that may be a pro or a con for your group. It goes back to my number four, that everything's kind of simultaneous. I feel like there's a lot of table talk at the game, which could be good or bad. So I don't know if it's as big a deal because I think everybody's kind of involved all the time. Well, I'm just thinking like if I played this at a con with three people I didn't know, I could totally see like whoever is the person at camp just sitting on their phone for the next like 10 minutes every turn. You know what I mean? Oh, sure. Yeah, but that that's pretty rare. I just want to call it out there as a potential issue. Yeah, I think I generally agree with Peter on this one. I originally agreed with you, Mike, where I thought being the fourth player would not be as fun. But both times I've played this game, we were all constantly involved in every decision. So I, I'm not sure it really makes a difference. For each player that you have, really the only thing that they're doing is bookkeeping on their own individual character. Like everything else ended up being a group decision. And it was really just the individual player's responsibility to know what their powers were and, you know, what powers they could add to their deck when they did the rest action. Uh, Beyond that, I didn't really see much of a difference between one player playing one character or another. Oh, cool. I'm I'm glad you guys had a more positive view of it. That's awesome. All right, Jerry, what's your number two? My number two is mostly a con, and that's the randomness of the game. I think there's a little bit too much of it. So when you start off, you like Mike said, you have five powers and you randomly choose three. And then of those three, you randomly choose one to start injured. Well, since there some powers are, in my opinion, strictly better than others, it kind of stinks when you get one of the powers that isn't as great and one of your better powers is the one that starts injured versus if you had your three best powers to start the game. And that randomness is compounded by the layout of each location when you're laying out the line of monsters that it's all randomly generated now you get to use the fire to reveal some of them but you could have a setup like we did in in one game where we just got crushed in like the second location because the first location was just so brutal i mean it was good that the you know at least the game killed us quick i guess but it just seemed heavily heavily dependent on uh, the randomness of the setup as opposed to the skill of the players Now, there is some way to adjust the randomness with cards called summon cards, and they bring in some of the super baddies or the unhallowed, I think they're called. And you can regulate the difficulty of the game by how many of those summon cards you include. But uh, I think that's a little bit overwhelmed by just the sheer randomness in the game. Yeah, so let me jump in front of Peter because that's pretty much the same as my number two. And something interesting for those who listen to the podcast and watch the YouTube channel In my review, this was a full-on pro, but after playing the game more after that, I think it has gone down to a mix. So originally what I said, and I still stand by all of this, is that I really like the luck mitigation in the game. And Jerry said this is sort of a negative earlier, but I like it. I like the fact that even if I roll terribly, I still feel useful in combat because those abilities are so good. And I don't agree with you, Jerry, that there's like no difference between rolling a four or a six. I think it's all part of the puzzle. Although, you know, some characters, the wizard being a major one, might not attack much at all, whereas others do attack a lot. Well, I did play the wizard for two of those games, two of the three games that I've played. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, good point. <laughs> so you might have a skewed view of that. But, yeah, I think I think the luck mitigation is good. I think that you always feel useful and things are always interesting and you don't, like, automatically lose just because you rolled uh, low numbers. But on the negative side, this is where I've kind of... Uh, changed a little bit because again this was just a pro in my video review i do agree with jerry that 
it's and this is going to get right into our design discussion after the review. I do think that the uh, luck is a little fragile here, and you can have like incredibly difficult games or very easy games based on just random factors of which enemies come out in which order. And it's not a terrible thing; it doesn't ruin the game for me. But you know, if if I want a consistent experience, I'm not really getting it. Like if I want to. The way the game, as Jerry says, controls difficulty is adding however many summon cards to the deck. And if I think that, like, the game will be hard when I have three summons and medium when I have two summons, the game might just decide that, like, this time medium is hard because of how the things came out. And, you know, hard is medium because things came out in a really good way. So it's not terrible. I think it can increase the uh, variability, but it can be frustrating at times. And, yeah, as Jerry mentioned, can just lead to kind of a good game let's start again early on if you just get really messed up by a lot of negative abilities right away yeah so i'll go into my number two which has a lot to do with what everybody's saying here but really touches on the point that jerry mentioned earlier and my number two is roles sometimes matter and i really feel like for a game with a lot of dice rolling really just your top one or two numbers matters because as you know, Jerry said, and, and Mike kind of alluded to as well, a lot of times you're going to use at least one dice on one of your powers. So your bottom dice typically doesn't matter. I mean, there are characters where it does, like the thief will use the total of his things to backstab people. But he also has a skill that changes his lowest dice into a six. So again, does that lowest dice really matter? Maybe, maybe not. Yeah, you don't want to have to use that six skill. So I like the dice rolling. I like some of the tactical decisions, but does seem to be very mitigatable and i think the most important thing is for me at least anyway is who rolled doubles because if anybody rolled doubles there's some really powerful actions that you could do while you're at the camp and i don't even think it's the lowest dice that should go to the camp i think it's whoever rolls doubles and, and or whoever rolls a six because sixes can heal people or if you want to change out your powers whoever rolls a four or higher you know they have to go to do that and whoever rolls doubles again can do those doubles actions so for me those are almost more important than the numbers on the dice because the dice themselves can be used for your powers a lot of times so I don't know. The the dice seemed to matter, but didn't seem to matter. So for me, it was more of a con, but that's because I think I tend to like dice luck in games, and as long as there's ways to mitigate it, then I like it. But this game didn't even really have too much mitigation. There were skills that did it sometimes, but a lot of times, whatever you rolled is what you ended up with. But on the other hand, I didn't think it was important anyway, because, again, you can just use those numbers for whatever. All right, Jerry, what's your number one? My number one is pretty much a pro, and that is the game is really almost a glorified puzzle. Now, the reason I use the term glorified is that I happen to like puzzle games, so when I'm playing this game, I, I enjoy it because it is a puzzle. But if you're a, a gamer who's really looking for more thematic roll dice, try to beat the enemy by rolling high enough, I don't think this is that game. This game is more, there is a setup, and then you have to discover by revealing the cards what is the best way to get through this level so that you are in the best position for the following levels. And again, that's something I really enjoy, the puzzle aspect, but it, I'm sure it's not for everyone. And my number one's kind of a mishmash. The game is very thematic to me, even though Jerry said it is very puzzly. I agree with that as well. But... The enemies are thematic. I think your characters are pretty thematic. They, you know, they all do different things. But the negative side of that is what Mike had said earlier. I think the powers are limited, and I think there are certainly better powers than others. 
And I think because they gave you a mechanic to switch out your powers, you're not kind of stuck with what you draw at the beginning of the game. You can use one of those camping actions to switch out your powers so you can get whatever powers you want. And I do think some are that much better that it's almost a necessity for people to go get those better powers at the beginning of the game. And then they can really, you know, take care of the last couple of levels a lot easier. So I almost wish they didn't give you the option to switch out those powers. It's like, all right, there are five powers. They're all pretty good. And here you go. This game, you're going to have to figure out how to make these powers work. So if I was going to house rule anything, I might house rule that out. But then some characters are so reliant on some of those heavy powers that you almost can't do that. That's the negative part is, as Mike had said earlier... I wish they were more evenly balanced, and that way any set of powers would really work, and you wouldn't have to worry about switching them out. You know, my number one is pretty much right along with Jerry. I think the puzzle is really fun here, especially in solo play where you have full control of all the moving pieces, because it's not that complicated of a puzzle, but it is still fun to figure out. For sort of the the gut feeling I get when playing the game, I would compare it a lot to One Deck Dungeon, which I enjoy a lot. Not everyone does. But for me, uh, the like little, you know, here's some pieces, fill them in in the best way possible is a lot of fun here. And I actually think this one is in some ways better than One Deck Dungeon because the hidden element of enemies uh, coming out and being revealed from the line adds in some fun tension Whereas one deck dungeon, once you've rolled the dice, it's really just an optimization puzzle of what can I do to best address the needs I have here. So yeah, I think it's a fun puzzle. Totally agree with what you said, Peter. It was higher on my list. But yeah, I do wish the balance was better. If I was going to work on the game, I would rebalance some of the cards instead of uh, changing any of the rules, you know. I think one deck dungeon is a very good comparison. I got a very similar feel between Set of Watch and One Deck Dungeon. I did enjoy Set of Watch a little bit more, just like you, but the feel of the game to me was very similar. All right, well, Jerry, keep rolling. What are your final thoughts on this one? So I had a decent amount of fun with uh, Set of Watch. It's not the best game I've ever played, and I think it would shine if you're a solo player uh, a little bit more than it did multiplayer because of the aspect that Peter had mentioned earlier where it's really group decisions. It's not turns much at all. But I did enjoy the game a lot, and if there were a couple tweaks here and there, like balancing the powers a little bit better and maybe mitigating the initial randomness by having you choose powers and then be stuck with them, for example, might improve the game. But overall, I had a lot of fun with it. Yeah, and I'll go next. I said a lot of negative things about the game, but I agree with both of you. I mean, I think it's a fun romp, and I like it a lot better than One Deck Dungeon. So, yeah, like Mike said, the revealing of enemies is always fun and tense. You know, oh my gosh, this is going to be something we're going to have a hard time with, or please don't have any bad reveal powers, or please don't do this. You know, we can't really deal with this right now. And I agree that the puzzling nature of the game is fun. I do think it would be best as a solo or two-player experience, personally. Even three players, you know, passing the extra character rounds is not a big deal, but it wasn't ideal, you know. So what we did is whenever somebody was resting, we gave them that neutral character that we kept passing around. But again, as we've said many times, I don't know that that much matters anyway, since the decisions are mostly group decisions. But I think controlling, you know, two characters each, and then if one of your guys is camping, you're still involved in the combat. I think that would probably be where my sweet spot for the game would be, but I could imagine it being pretty easy to handle solo as well. But I did have fun with it, and I think it's a fairly inexpensive game. And it's pretty portable, too. So with all that said, I mean, I think it's kind of a no-brainer. You know, if you're looking for this kind of a shorter, puzzlier, portable game in your collection, I think it's, you know, I think it does really well. 
Yeah, I can't really add much, Peter. You pretty much, <laughs> Peter and Jerry, but especially Peter, what you just said. That's totally where I am. I think it's best as a solo game, good as a two and three player game. Um, I do think you need to use caution with things we've mentioned. If you have uh, alpha player problems, this game could be problematic. If you're playing mostly with four and you think they might get bored not uh, directly having a role, like not wanting to discuss, I think that's problematic. But otherwise, I think this is a really fun, puzzly game. I wish they'd gotten those hero powers better. And I I agree with all of you that I think the game would actually be better without the equip action, especially if the powers were more balanced. So you just have to kind of deal with what you have for the game. Or even, like, got cycled naturally so that the combos would be broken up, like uh, Jerry had said. So I think there are some tweaks they can make, like in an expansion or variants, that would make this better, like, really, really good. But as it is, yeah, as Peter said, I think the base game is, like, 30 bucks retail. So once it's available on the online shops, you can probably get this game for, like, $22, $24. And it's a really small box you can bring anywhere. It's, it's a great game. I would definitely get it at that price. If it was a $50 game, eh, I don't know. But uh, for the price point you have here, I think it's definitely worth it. Yep, I agree with all of that, especially since I said it first. Yes, no, great words. (laughs) So our design topic is on randomness, but specifically how kind of controlled the randomness is. So I think a great example of what I'm talking about here is a set of games we've had debates on in the past, and that's Lord of the Rings, the card game versus Arkham Horror, the card game. So in Arkham Horror, the card game, the mythos, like, negative cards you're drawing every turn are fairly closely balanced. There isn't, like, one that just straight up kills everybody and another one that does nothing. They tend to strive for a similar power level, with some exceptions. Lord of the Rings, the card game, though, actively has cards that are way, 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 way worse than other cards. So much so that they've actually gone in and said, if you want to play the game on easy mode, take out these specific cards from these scenarios. Like, you have cards that will just kill all your allies. Or you have enemies that are, like, three or four times as strong as any of the other enemies just popping up in the exact same place. So Arkham has a very controlled level of randomness where things are kind of internally balanced with each other. And Lord of the Rings, the card game, has a very swingy level of randomness where things can be incredibly bad or incredibly good. So that's kind of what we're talking about here. What are the pros and cons of both? Uh, Would one of you like to start that off? Well, I could start off. The swinginess of of a game, especially when it's a co-op, really has an impact on how much I enjoy it. And Mike, using your example of Lord of the Rings, some of those cards that just straight up kill you, when those turn up and you you lose the game and you feel like there was nothing you could have done to win the game, uh, that is very off-putting to me as far as as a co-op. If I lose a game, or you know, especially if I'm close but I lose, I, it feels good if I felt like if only I had played better or had we had played better, we would have won. Or next time I can do, you know, X, Y, and Z differently, and hopefully we'll overcome the challenge. And that's something that, in especially Lord of the Rings, the card game, when you get one of those, you know, big bads that come and just smash you, you lose the game and you feel like, you know, well, there's nothing I could have done, let's set it up and try again. But I don't always want to set it up and try again after an experience like that. Compare that with, you know, like you said, Arkham, where the Mythos cards are basically balanced, I can't, I come away from that feeling more like that if I lose, it's because of choices I made versus the game just decided to punish me for playing. So I, I think that's a... I don't know if I'm alone in that feeling. I, I doubt I am. But 
set a watch sometimes for me edged towards more of the swingy side of things where that one game where we just got crushed i i didn't feel like that was because of something we did or or didn't do it was really just the game happened to end up that punishing and i will say in lord of the rings defense that they do have cards that can counter most of those things what i don't love personally about it is that when I've talked to Steve, for example, or Terrence on the Slack, who are big Lord of the Rings fans, they're like, oh, well, you just have to put this card in your deck. And I don't like the idea that I have to put a card in my deck, you know, <laughs> like to deal with it. Like that is such a big problem that you must prepare for it. But I think some people could really enjoy that. Well, not only do you have to put that card in your deck, you have to have drawn it at some point. Well, <laughs> yeah. Which, again, is not something you've made a decision to do. Right. Yeah, for me, this discussion, whatever comes down to I don't want to be at either end of this spectrum. And what I mean by that is, you know, you guys have been talking about the swingy end, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time with that. You don't want a situation where the players feel like they had no agency, where whatever they did didn't matter, and the game kind of took them on a ride. I mean, I guess sometimes you're in the mood for that kind of thing, but especially the longer the game is, you definitely don't want it to feel out of your control where you're not making impactful, meaningful decisions. But it can go too far the other way, too, where you're so tightly balanced and there's so much control over everything. And I mean, I think we talked about this a little bit in Set of Watch today, too. So ironically, I think it may even touch on both ends of this spectrum, even though we like the game, where, you know, whatever I do almost matters too much and I I can do whatever I want and I, I don't have any limiting factors. I think people need limiting factors on them just so the game doesn't get stale. So it's not repetitive because if there's an obvious better thing, then you're always going to go toward that obvious better thing. And that's where you, you know, you could lose some swinginess because there's just so much control. So I think you want some level of excitement in there. And I think you can lose that if you go too far the other way and give players almost too much control. I agree with what you said there, Peter, but, and I'd like to add that I think maybe this problem is, or this issue is especially apparent with puzzle, uh, or games that are kind of puzzly. Nobody likes to have a puzzle that is impossible to solve, and I, I think if you're too swingy, to get back to that, you may have puzzles that you cannot solve, and that is what I think designers especially should avoid in co-op games. Yeah, and just one more thing on the swinginess side, because I'd also like to kind of move to other parts of this. I think that a big design no-no, at least for me, and I think for a lot of players based on what I've talked to them about, is having the cards be so extreme in kind of their internal imbalance that it can be a straight-up game over, like uh, Jerry mentioned. Or if not a game over, an incredibly demoralizing and game-extending experience. So two examples of this that I think are both bad design, generally speaking. The first one is in Eldritch Horror. There's sort of an infamous card that was in the Azathoth deck that, if you didn't know it was coming and didn't prepare by having a certain number of clues, would just straight up steal one of the mysteries that you had worked really hard to get. And the game is completing three mysteries. So basically it rewound your game one third of the way and meant you would have to play another half hour to an hour to uh, still win the game. Totally unfun, I think. Like that's as cool as it is to have unexpected things happen. That's way too far. The other one is one of my favorites, Sentinels of the Multiverse. There are several uh, villains, but uh, one that's in the base game is Citizen Dawn that has a straight-up board wipe ability, and Citizen's Dawn's, unless you have, like, Wraith scouting ahead to find it, is totally unpreventable, and she just takes away everything you've built. And, you know, I think you got to look at what your game's kind of sweet spot is. 
And in, uh, in the case of Sentinels of the Multiverse, it's the most fun thing for me is building up my character. So having a card that literally undoes everything I've done in terms of the most fun aspect of the game, not good design there. So I think Peter's right that you can have excitement, but don't go so far that any card, and I think Lord of the Rings does do this at times, any card is like just a wipe or a completely unfun destruction of all your efforts. Yeah, and I mean, just sticking on the swinginess side of things, because I do think it's time to, to switch over to the other side too, but two examples for me are games that I didn't love because they were supposed to be these games where you know there was a lot of strategy or whatever else, and then I really found the luck was too swingy in them. And they're, you know, they're co-ops that people typically say are some of the harder co-ops, which is Robinson Crusoe and Ghost Stories. But I don't think those games are necessarily hard as much as they are just swingy. So for Ghost Stories, that's an easier example. A lot of times you're fighting stuff, you're just rolling dice to see what happens. And yes, there are ways you can mitigate things with tokens and things like that. But a lot of those combats come down to just rolling a dice and you're hoping to get one six of the sides. Well, I guess there's a wild side. So two six of the sides, you know, give you the colors you need. You know, but people always are like, oh, this game's great because it's so difficult. Well, it's not difficult. It's just random and sometimes it's not difficult and sometimes it's really easy and sometimes it's not same with robinson crusoe a lot of times if you only use one marker to do an action you have to roll dice to see how it resolves if you use two actions to do it it automatically resolves so people are like oh you have so much control you know you can decide whether you do it or not that would be true if the game gave you enough turns to do two actions on every necessary thing but that would also again go too far and be boring but what happens a lot of times is you use one action because you need it, but you know you might be able to survive without it, and then one-sixth of the time, you just completely fail on that action. People are like, oh, that's so brutally hard. Well, it's not brutally hard. It's just can be unfair in certain situations. And, and to me, that's not fun, You know, where you do all this planning to do certain actions, and then you don't get it. So those are two examples to me of games that people describe as really hard co-ops where I think too much of the action is out of your control. Yeah, and this brings up something we've talked about in previous discussions, but it's something that I believe strongly, and that's that it is more fun as a player, and this is something I think you should design, it is more fun as a player to fail forward rather than just to totally fail, or I should call it, uh, this is a, uh, something I got from the Fate RPG, to succeed at a cost. So with Peter's example, I think it would be way more fun in Robinson Crusoe if instead of just totally failing your action that you tried to do, you instead lost some health or had some cost to your negative roll. In Salvation Road, we had the same kind of thing. There's uh, the option to punch a raider if you don't have any ammo, and it's you know usually not a great option, but you might have to take it. In earlier drafts of that, it was a roll to see whether you actually defeated the raider, and if you didn't, you would take some damage. But what we eventually went to is you always defeat the raider. The action success is not up for grabs here. Instead, it would determine whether you took a little or a lot of damage from defeating the raider. So again, it's success with a bigger or smaller cost instead of actually determining whether the success happens or not. And not every game needs to do this, but if it's a game where like you only get one action a turn or two actions a turn, something very tight like worker placement-y, like Robinson Crusoe, I think uh, the loss of an entire turn or entire half of your turn to random fate can feel too punishing. So I would rather you do some kind of success with cost uh, scenario there. 
Well, and if you remember, there are two dice you roll. So you could roll a fail on one dice and take a wound on the other dice. So you could really, you know, even within that failure, you can have either nothing happen or other consequences along with it. So it's like, you know, you could get doubly hurt by those actions. So I think another aspect of this is the type of game uh, that you're designing or that you're, the tri- type of play experience that you're going for. So, uh, you know, as we've been saying, if you have like a puzzle game, uh, maybe you need a bit more control. But if you're going for a straight narrative game, something like Mansions of Madness, or I suppose this is how a lot of people feel about Robinson Crusoe, where they think it's more of a narrative game and it's okay that there's these uh, wild swings and luck and your actions can just straight up fail. If you're designing or you're trying to create a narrative play experience, maybe the swinginess not, isn't as much of an issue and the players don't need to have as much control because the randomness and the, and the swinginess can just add more narrative variety to the game. And some people, I think, really enjoy that. I know one of Peter's favorite games is, um, and this is not a co-op, but uh, Tales of the Arabian Nights. Where... <laughs> oh, yeah, I love that. <laughs> just to clarify here, Jerry is being incredibly sarcastic. Peter <laughs> despises that game. But a lot of people like that game. And that game is the, if you want to talk about swingy games, that is the the most random swingy game ever. Uh, what you choose to do has absolutely no bearing whatsoever on the result. And some people really like that game because it creates a narrative experience. And you can never be sure where the story is going to go next. And to a lesser extent, that I think that extends to something like Mansions of Madness, where really bad things can happen, but it just adds to the story, and therefore it doesn't it doesn't matter as much. Yeah, and one of the big proponents of kind of what Peter said earlier of games having enough randomness to keep them exciting is Richard Launius, who we've worked on on a design. And I think of Arkham Horror as going along with what you're saying, Jerry, uh, either first or second edition where there is a good amount of swinginess. Like, you might go to an encounter at a location and get something entirely positive, like, hey, here's a free knife. Or you might get something really, really negative. But, first of all, the game is long enough, and you have so many of those encounters that kind of, like, die rolls, it tends to balance out, and it's not like you feel like you lose or win based on a single one of those encounters. But also, it creates a broader, more exciting narrative experience. Having those highs and those lows, and again, this is something uh, Richard has said to us a lot, having like those big highs, like the woot, like, you know, uh, high five each other kind of turns where something amazing happened, or those lows where something terrible happens, but you still feel like you can respond to it and maybe still come out to win the game, that can make a game more memorable and not just like this dry experience. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. And I know sometimes I tend to lean too heavily toward the other side where I want almost too much control. And you're right it does dull some of those moments of you know stand up high five moments and so i do think as a designer you have to be careful you know if you do tend to lean toward that mechanical side toward that more euroy side of things which i do then you may suck some of the fun out of or all of the fun out of the game because you are trying to make such a sterile experience where well no matter what i do i'm not going to fail that badly So I I do think there is that other end of things where you can take some of the fun out of the game. So, you know, I know that's something I have to watch for myself when I'm designing stuff. I'm like, wait a minute, this used to be more fun. What happened? Well, uh, you know, you take out too much randomness and now it's just, well, I know it's going to happen every turn. Maybe it's good to have swinginess on the positive side, but more control on the bad side. So sort of like, uh, like you said, Mike, success with the cost. 
So you might have those high five moment, high five moments where you rolled something really good and you know you've defeated the the big boss and you know yay. But even if you fail, you didn't fail that badly that you feel like you didn't have any agency. Yeah, a great example of this, and <laughs> I've I love this mechanic. I've talked about it in all three games we've seen it. But in the uh, Blacklist games, uh, Street Masters, Brook City, and Alter Quest. The Saddlers have this dice mechanic where you have exploding positive dice for the heroes, but the enemies do not have exploding dice, and even the worst result for the heroes still gives you a token to mitigate your luck in the future. And I love those kind of things, so I I totally agree with you, Jerry, that I don't mind swinginess on the positive end where amazing things happen sometimes, and I think of how cool that was for me, but yeah, yeah, like the... The negative swinginess, I think it can still be there to shock you, but not to a game-losing extent. Yeah, and I think one game that gets it really right, at least for me, is Spirit Island, where there's a lot of control in that game. You know a lot of what's going to happen. It even shows you like three turns ahead of time. Like, all right, they first, the settlers come here, and the next they're going to build here, and then they're going to attack here. So you kind of really can look ahead three or four turns so you have a lot of control when it comes to that but at the same time where they come and settle every turn is completely random so you don't exactly know you know how you have to deal with things three turns from now or four turns from now turn by turn there are still a lot of cool decisions but it also gives you enough moments of input randomness where something pops up somewhere that you're not expecting that you have to deal with So I think it's a good level of control versus still leaving some excitingness in the gameplay itself. All right, Jerry, so one piece of advice for designers. What would you say when you're you're designing your system of randomness versus control, what do you think is an important tip? First, I think, is uh, figure out what kind of experience you want the players to have, whether it's more puzzly or more narrative, and then try to limit the downside risk of a uh, bad roll or a bad action or, or, or whatever so that... Players don't become too discouraged or feel like they don't have any agency, but yet there's still that excitement that they could potentially pull off something really awesome. All right, Mike, how about you? Out of all the ones we said, I think the idea that you need to tailor the swinginess of the luck to the number of instances that luck is checked. So, you know, we've heard this a billion times. If a game has like 100 die rolls, you don't really care too much if they're kind of swingy. But if a game has five die rolls, it's really terrible. So if somebody's like drawing from a deck of cards and some of them are good and some of them are bad, if they draw from that deck of cards 10 times, make it really not swingy. If they draw from that deck of cards 30 times or 40 times, then feel free to make it very swingy and don't worry too much about it. It's funny, you mentioned one we didn't even discuss in our design discussion, and I'm going to do the same thing. So mine is... Base it on the length of the game, too. A 30-minute game can be super swingy, and people aren't going to care as much. As if I'm five hours into a game, and one dice roll wipes me off the board, I'm going to care a whole lot more about that. So, based on the length of your game, too, I think you can make the swinginess more or less. And as Mike said, in a longer game, you can still have swinginess, as long as there's a lot of instances of those, and none of them are game-crushing. So, the level of effect that you have and the level of swinginess you have really is determined partially by the length of your game as well. I think just keep that in mind as you're designing. All right. And before we close out the episode, we'd like to thank some of our Patreon contributors who uh, helped us out. So this week we'd like to thank Joshua T, Mark B and big, big man, a starter of the channel, Colin D. 
So thank you all for contributing to the One Stop Co-op Shop Patreon. All of them are contributors at the MVP level. And yeah, we'll, we'll keep on naming people and just thanking them as we go along. We might even wrap back around to people we've already thanked uh, when we reach the end of the list. Yes, so thank you everybody who's contributed. And Jerry, that includes you. Thank you for contributing to the show today. <laughs> You're welcome. Thanks for having me. So thank you for joining us this week, and as you're hearing this, we're actually on our way back from Gen Con, and we'll be listening to it ourselves on the car ride home. So next week, we're going to have a very special episode. Jerry, Steve, and I are going to be on talking about what cool things we saw at Gen Con. So if you are at Gen Con, I hope you came by and said hello to us. And if you didn't, shame on you, and that's not very cooperative of you. (laughs) Don't shame our (laughs) listeners, Peter. Shame! Shame! And then one final thing. So the Gen Con recap will be episode 98. Episodes 99 and 100. Super, super cool stuff happening. Uh, We'll tell you about it in that Gen Con episode and probably in a YouTube video as well. But I am so excited about what's going to be coming down the pike. Very cool. Well, thanks for joining us again. And we'll see you next week when we recap Gen Con. Thanks for listening to another episode of the One Stop Co-op Shop podcast. Please check out our YouTube channel at One Stop Co-op Shop. If you want to reach out to us, the best place to talk to us all is on the Slack. See the show notes for details. Also, you can support us on Patreon. Check out patreon.com slash one stop. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you all next week with another top five list. Cool. All right. Well, Jerry, being our guest, why don't you start us off? Uh, well, before I get to that. I was about to say, I'm like, oh, <laughs> that was Peter quite a jump. Gonna, <laughs> is Peter going to think that people know what our format is? <laughs> no, they never know. They will never, ever, ever know. I mean, I, I hope we have a new listener every week. So now go ahead. So for those of us, oh, for those of us, for those of us who have never listened I, before. I don't know what we're doing. Yeah. Please <laughs> tell me what we do. <laughs> All right, anybody else have anything to say on this topic of kind of fragility and internal balance of luck systems? I guess that's a no. <laughs> I have nothing further to add. <laughs> no, no, it's fine. All right, everybody. Well, we will see you next week with another top five list. Will we? <laughs> no, I was about Hold to say on. the same Hold thing. On. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's the, you might want to mention, I think it's going to be your like Gen Con recap episode. Okay. Yes. Yeah. So you, why don't you say something about next week is Gen Con? Yeah. Hey, Mike. Yeah. Guess what? What? Chicken butt. Oh. <laughs> you really didn't have anything else? Is that? <laughs> well, this episode is all about randomness, so I thought it'd go random. <laughs>